Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, pediatrician, and founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Future of Us, er, Dr. Erwin Redliner. That's his new book, The Future of Us, Why the Dreams of Children, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. Inadequate education, barriers to health care, and crushing poverty make it overwhelmingly difficult for many children to realize their dreams. Finding ways to alter these trajectories is serious grown-up business, says Dr. Erwin Redliner. He draws upon his years of professional experiences to examine our nation's health care safety nets and special programs that are designed to protect and nurture our most vulnerable kids, but the two often fail. Dr. Redliner, a public health analyst for NBC, MSNBC, regularly communicates with leadership in the U.S. Departments of Health and Human Services and Homeland Security. He serves as a special advisor on emergency preparedness to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio and recently partnered with Share in Share Cares, a new program that assists communities struggling with COVID-19. Welcome to the show, doctor. Nice to have you on this morning. Uh, my pleasure, Captain. Thank you. Okay, so today we'll talk about a lot of things, but we want to talk about the future of us, our children's future, and uh, what the dreams of children mean for 21st century America. And I guess the the premise of the book is that that we're not doing what we should do, and that there are very there are millions and millions of vulnerable children in our country who are don't right. who have dreams, but they can't be met given what we. Uh, provide for them or our programs that are designed to help them don't really don't really do that I guess so what do we do well right so this is a very uh, critical time by the way and everything that I wrote about in this book uh, in terms of the challenges that children have have been uh, all of these issues have been very much exacerbated over the last eight months as we've been coping trying to cope with uh, the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's always the case that any kind of large-scale disaster, including a pandemic like this, the ones that are uh, most profoundly hit uh, by negative consequences are, are unfortunately the people that are most vulnerable. So poor children and children of living uh, or children of color are really, really uh under the uh, under the gun here when it comes to the impact. So the problems and challenges they were facing before the pandemic have been exacerbated dramatically. In fact, uh, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, a few months ago saying that, you know, we have this thing which I'm, I call the pandemic generation, which are the kids that we're, we're talking about. And it's really serious business. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to worry about here. And one of the main points of the book and uh, consequent to my own experiences uh, is, is that uh, although these terrible things and these terrible barriers are impeding children from succeeding the way we'd like them to, so on a personal basis for those kids and families, it's, it's really unfortunate and tragic that they can't manifest their own potential. But the second point here is that this also has a very serious impact on society. Uh, we need every, you know, all hands on deck here. We need every child to be uh, able to reach their full potential. And if they don't, or if, uh, you know, if we end up having to do remediation, 
which is costly and often ineffective, we've lost significant percentage of the population that's going to make up our country's future. Which so, is Dr. Redlander, I want to just ask you, I want to step a bit like to be, you're talking about these barriers for these impoverished children, and they've been exacerbated, obviously, in, you know, in the past nine months with, with sure. uh, the pandemic. What are those barriers specifically? What are we dealing with? I mean, what... So, yeah. yeah. So, and, and actually, the, the first part of the book is all about specific examples of children who had dreams and have aspirations and are not able to reach them. So, what are the problems? So, first of all, living in poverty is an extreme barrier to success. Yes, there are some people who anecdotally will escape that and become successful, but the vast majority of children who grow up in poverty will, in fact, uh, uh, be uh, hampered with the other consequences of living in poverty, which is access, you know, poor access to health care, uh, going to uh, very inadequate schools uh, so that their education and their health is affected. So if you have a child who's supposed to be finishing high school at age 18, going on to continue their lives, but they have, uh, you know, they've been poorly educated, they're not ready for advanced education or even a trade, uh, that's that's what we're talking about. So poor education, bad access to health care, living in poverty, food insecurity, and so on are the barriers that uh, that we're worried about. Now, food insecurity, isn't that one of the biggest ones right now with the pandemic? It is, and it was even, even before there were 15 million or so children who lived in food insecurity. If you think about how many children are eligible for free or reduced-price uh, school lunches or breakfasts, uh, that's an indicator of how many kids really don't get enough to eat uh, outside these special federal programs. Yeah, so, and all of that, of course, is made much worse. Many more families are living in uh, poverty now with less access to uh, decent diets and nutrition, and this has all been exacerbated during the pandemic. All right, all of this sounds very grim, and I guess my next question is, where do we go? What, what do we do? What can we do? I mean, we have a we have a new administration. I assume things will change as a result of that, hopefully. But um, given what the circumstances are now, and how all of these, you know, these impoverished children haven't been taken care of in the past, and now it's gotten worse, where do we go from here? Right, and I actually, I think what we're going to need is something on the order of a Marshall Plan for children. Marshall Plan, of course. Uh, people not familiar with it, was the plan that was put into effect after World War II uh, to rebuild the totally destroyed cities throughout Europe because of World War II. That was a phenomenal success, but it required a real commitment to a mission to do this and the investment of funds. And I think this is, in effect, what uh, children are going to need, the ones that are already at disadvantage right now. And I think, I don't think we would have had a shot at this if uh, if Trump had gotten reelected, but I do think there's all kinds of possibilities now with the new Biden-Harris team coming into office. And we're going to be promoting like crazy the idea, let's fix the schools, let's end poverty in families, let's make sure there's no family that uh, has to be food insecure and so on. And I think this might take a, de- take a decade or more, but we have to get started. And uh, I think that's what we're hoping for, a huge uh, multi-sector uh, commitment to improving the status and the future of every child in, in our country. All right. And you've been doing this for your whole career, as we uh, I think I mentioned in the beginning. You, you've had 
what, how many, 40 years of experience working with children? and uh, uh, Almost almost 50, but who's counting? Almost 50, you know, okay, uh, all right, 50 years. You know, <laughs> yeah, so I actually, uh, and actually there's a point about that that, that might be interesting. So, uh, so I started my career uh, as the medical director of a federal federally funded clinic in um, one of the, well, actually it was the sixth poorest county in America, in Lee County, Arkansas. And the statistics were, as you can imagine, profound poverty, but also all the other things, bad schools and everything else. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I was 27 years old or something in that order. People will be doing the math now. I'm sorry I said that, but I don't care really. So, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. so there I was in 1971. I was a child of the Kennedy-Johnson era. And I thought basically at that point, at that point in my, you know, early career, that we could fix anything in America and that we would. And I would tell people, and I recounted this in the book also that, you know, in 10 or 15 years from 1971, certainly we'll have solved health care access for everybody, including children, and that we would end poverty and so on. And here we are, literally next year will be 50 years later, and we're still struggling with these same problems. I guess I was looking back on it, which of course I was looking back on it, I am looking back on it in the book, um, you know, I'm, I'm stunned that we haven't made more progress. You know, even putting the pandemic aside, it, it's just incredible to me. And I look at my own children and grandchildren and thinking, we're leaving them a mess. The world is in, in trouble and getting worse. And uh, But I'm hopeful that with the new administration and a new commitment and maybe some new, really, unification of disparate interests in America that will rally around the cause of taking care of our children. And well, that and was my why, so the book yeah. talk, no that was yeah. my response when I was reading your book I thought the same thing and I, you know I'm sort of in your age category maybe a little younger but I, and I'm thinking it was a mess then and it's still a mess all of the things that you were experiencing what in you were in Africa and Miami yeah. and, and all of these places and, yeah. and we're yeah so well this is this is a it's an interesting thing to to ponder Catherine it's like here we are. And I think all of us could say that we had hopes for the future at that time, and uh, they haven't really been realized yet. But I do think there is hope now, uh, ironically, because of the change in administration, but also because we've been through uh, a heck of a mess right now and suffered from political issues and all that. But right now, I think we could maybe focus ourselves on how we're going to make our world better, how we're going to make our country better. You know, one of the things I try to do in the book also, I talk about children, I give lots of examples at some length of kids who are struggling, but it's also, there's a lot of memoir here where I try to uh, tell the story of what I've seen, what I've been through, in ways that maybe people will find interesting, but it's been a long journey, still not completed, and, uh, you know, anxious to try to see what will happen uh, after January 20th. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about the book, the <clears throat> book that I really liked was that it, it, it's intimate. Yes, you talk about also you talk about yourself, which I found interesting in your background and growing up, but also the the intimate relationship that you had with these children. And we've been kind of discussing like what we need to do on the macro level. What do you like as a social worker, which I am uh, on the micro level? Like, yeah, I know. What, yeah. How do the children? How you know? How do? How can you? I guess specifically to do with children on an individual level, whether you're a physician or a social worker or a nurse, in terms of helping these kids to to get beyond where they are? 
Well, it's a really great question. You know, I loved practicing pediatrics for the decades that I was doing that. Now I'm just running the National Center for Disaster Preparedness Pandemic Program and so on. But I think one of the things is to give children, all children, permission to dream, to have aspirations. And as much as possible on an individual basis uh, to talk to children about what it takes and to talk to their families and to say, uh, in essence, a message on the order of you guys have been struggling and there's a lot of things you have to deal with, but you're up to the challenge. And uh, here's what here's what the the path forward looks like and talking uh to children and, you know, directly, you know, eye to eye contact and saying, we have, I have really great hopes for you and your future and it's possible. Um, so I'm doing individual advocacy and larger scale advocacy at the same time. And I think this is, this is what we do. And again, you point out, this is not obviously just pediatricians or doctors. This is, this is again, this is a team effort that involves parents, uh, and uh, social workers, teachers, very, very importantly, uh, all of us have to be into this uh, notion of how do we give kids hope and how do we create a pathway that could be successful. You know, do you think funny, the internet you know, people should say, you know, yeah. yeah, the internet, sorry, Catherine, say, uh, Do you again? think the internet will help that that given that we have access and these kids should also have access, obviously? to the internet, that that will help facilitate this, uh, you know? It, 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 it depends, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it depends, you know, a lot of, first of all, a lot of uh, children and a lot of families in America do not have access to the internet. They don't have access to broadband. Uh, and when they do, uh, you know, it's, there's so much stuff on the internet, as you well know, uh, good and bad, that uh, we have to be able to guide families and children in terms of, how to use the internet effectively. And I think it can be done, uh, but it's not just, you don't just turn it on and all of a sudden you're getting great information and what to do, but it is a tremendously powerful tool, obviously, as you know, but there's nothing quite like the one-on-one personal interaction with children that's sustained over time. Uh, We need our teachers, our social workers, our uh, healthcare providers, and our families to uh, be focused on, on trying to get someplace with children. The other thing, you know, there's, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear um, Democrats tend to focus on big government programs as the answer. And I'm, over, I'm simplifying this, but Republicans think, you know, uh, the government has no business raising children. This is a parent's responsibility. It turns out, and I write about this in the book, too, that it's actually both. You can't have government raising children, but you can have parents uh, building new schools and hiring teachers. So it's really the partnership between parents and and government and society in general that will be the key to making dreams come true for kids. And this is what we're hoping to kind of transcend those political differences, the ideological differences, and say, yeah, yeah, we're all, we need you, everybody to do everything if we're going to save this generation of children, especially after the pandemic. Well, you talk about in your book, you share some of your own personal background, which I found interesting and growing up in Brooklyn in a, and I'm going to put it, I don't know, in quotations, in a poor family. And yeah, yeah. look what you've achieved and where, what you've done. How did you do it? I mean, what, you know, where did you find those strengths or where did that come from? Well, I had a, first of all, I, I wouldn't, we were, I would guess I'd call us lower middle class. 
And uh, my mother eventually became a teacher. My father was a uh, was a psychologist at the VA system. So the uh, finances were very, very stretched in our family. But a lot of the strength uh, that my brothers and I had came from... Uh, from our parents, I guess. Uh, although it was never like a direct lesson, like you need to do this or that. It was like uh, my mother was a very dedicated teacher who loved what she was doing, and uh, my dad was a, a, a protester in Vietnam and before, and he was a victim of the McCarthy hearings and so on. So, I uh, my life was immersed in these uh, in the realities that was created, uh, you know, uh, by the family. And then, I don't know, it's, it's hard to know what influences you. I, you know, I, I'd sort of like to ask you the same question, how you ended up, uh, you know, ended up like in social work, which is such a, a critical profession now. Uh, but I think there's a variety of influences. But at the end of the day, it, there are things that you glean from your family that, that are unavoidable, uh, for better or worse. But, uh, you know, hopefully for people it's going to be for better. But I had a, I had a rocky childhood uh, in many ways, but... Um, uh, for reasons that I don't, I probably have to talk to you in a private session to figure out exactly <laughs> what, what the influences were and, and uh, how they got managed. But it was certainly uh, certainly an interesting childhood, and I try to lay that out in a way that would, people would find of interest and you know and uh, you know compelling. So yeah. that's that's sort of the story with that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I do. I found that interesting. And, and mine was maybe a different kind of a story. I came from a mother who, which was kind of a typical story of that period. My mother came from a well-to-do family and went to Smith and went to yeah. Columbia School of Social Work. And so you, women at that, t- you know, that's what you were expected to do, to give back. And, you know, I could go on and on and yeah. uh, married someone who came from a working class family, but went to Harvard and blah. And so, you know, um it was like you have so much, so yeah. you now you have to give back. I mean, that's simply put, but that was it anyway. But I want to also I want to ask you about share and share cares. What is that program? The, sure. um, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I've been out publicly uh, on MSNBC and NBC talking about the issues around the uh, pandemic, and uh, share was, I guess, more or less the, the latest, uh, you know, a list. Uh, person that I've worked with over many decades, which has also been pretty interesting, but um, I describe much of that in the book. But So Cher actually reached out to me, having seen me on MSNBC, and said she wanted to do something uh, for communities affected by the, by the pandemic. And uh, so we've been working together for a number of months now, and she personally donated a million dollars, which she asked me and my team to steward. And uh, we've been doing that and really focusing on uh, especially isolated communities and minority communities to try to make sure that things, everything from PPE to helping testing programs, et cetera, uh, in places where they're really struggling to get uh, things done. But it's been an absolutely fascinating relationship. She's a, she's a wonderful person, very progressive and interested in helping. Um, you know, and that, so this is what we've been doing. And uh, I didn't really know much about her other than her uh, music and acting career, but uh, turns out she's a great humanitarian who's uh, really committed to helping people. Yeah, um, sounds like helping many many causes actually, but it's been it's been very rewarding. All right, next, okay, that's Cher. Let's talk about Bill De Blasio because you've also been uh, advising yeah. him, and yeah. he does need advice. Yeah, <laughs> I have advice. He he needs he needs <laughs> advice. But he's also willing to accept advice. At the end of the day, though, 
he's in this very unenviable position where he has to he has to make a decision. Are the school's going to stay open? Are we going to close them? When are we going to reopen them? Um, and he's getting advice from every imaginable source around him. And, uh, and this is true for any mayor or governor during a pandemic like this. Since the information is not clear, there's no set formula, there's no facts that are immutable where you could say, we must do this because of that. It just doesn't exist like that. So everything is somewhat of a subjective call on some level. Um, I spoke to him a week and a half ago, most recently, just, you know, he and I in a conversation about the schools which had been closed. And I said, uh, I was a big believer in closing the schools to keep the infection down, the COVID-19 down. But these children, New York City's got 1.1 million uh, children in schools, public school system, about 700,000 of which live in poverty or near poverty. Those kids need to be in school, period. They don't have the wherewithal to do remote learning very effectively either. And, uh, and so we talked about how that would come about, and uh, I'm sure other people probably told them the same thing, but I said, let's get at least the younger children uh, back in school and we'll do it, you know, we're doing it safely so the teachers will not be, uh, you know, subject to getting infected from the kids and so on. But, yeah, I, I'm i fond of him. You know, de Blasio was the first major leader in the country to institute uh, mandatory or uh, universal pre-K school. Every four-year-old gets to go to pre-K in New York, at least until the pandemic. And he was starting to do this with three-year-olds also in, in a pre-pre-K. Um, so... He's trying, he's getting really beaten up badly by, by the media, sometimes warranted and sometimes not. Like I said, I, I think I, I would not want to be the mayor or a governor. Well, I guess if you begged me, I would be. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly a pleasant job when you have to make a decision or multiple decisions which are going to be extremely unpopular with some people or groups. Like at the instant you say them, you're going to get pushback. Uh, doesn't sound like a fun thing to do, but it's been. I've enjoyed uh, actually working with him. Uh, well, now that you've been, uh, you've had all this experience. Obviously, what about? Are we prepared? You're on. Are we prepared for the next pandemic? Because I think that, and this is obviously just from a social worker's point of view, but we're going to have a lot more pandemics, aren't we? I mean, with climate change and all these kinds of things, whether it's sure. a virus or whatever yeah. it is, are we prepared? Or because we don't seem to have been prepared well, for this. Uh, yeah. You know, we're, until the pandemic, we were working on all the other disasters, like related to climate change and uh, coastal storms and the wildfires and earthquakes. And, you know, and, uh, you know, we're better prepared than we were, uh, let's say, 20 years ago uh, when we started thinking about and creating these programs for disaster response and uh, so on. Uh, are we ready really right now for whatever comes our way? Absolutely not. And we're not even particularly ready for this next wave that's coming this winter, uh, certainly in the Northeast and California is uh, really dealing with some serious problems. I'm not even sure we're going to have enough PPE, you know, masks and ventilators and all that, but we'll see. Uh, but I think we have a lot to be concerned about and people are still working on it. We're better prepared in New York, for example, than we were when they had the, we had this horrible uh, uh, surge in uh, New York and the, the Northeast. Um, you know, that was a complete disaster and put really our whole healthcare system at risk. We're better prepared now, but I wouldn't say a whole lot better. We're better. 
We're better. Okay, well, I guess we're going in the right direction. That's all we can say. We only have a couple minutes left. Love talking to you today. It was. I, I just want to make sure that everybody gets the title of the book again, The Future of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. And we've been talking to Dr. Erwin Redliner. And where can we, uh, again, we can buy the book, I assume, online, book. I was going to say bookstores everywhere. I'm not sure that's yeah, yeah. true. It's, yeah, yeah. You can buy it in, uh, you can buy it in your local bookstore probably. I don't know for sure, but you can certainly buy it on Amazon or you could buy it directly from the publisher, which is Columbia University Press. Um, and uh, if you uh, go to my uh, website, which is uh, uh, .org, uh, you uh, there'll be information there as well. And, uh, and also, if people follow my Twitter account, there'll be periodically uh, connections and links to how you buy the book, and that's that would be at Irwin Redliner MD is the what is my Twitter account. So, yeah, and uh, and actually, I, I've invited people on my Twitter account to send me reviews, and I'll, I'd like to put them up on my blog. Uh, you know, good or not good, uh, I would love to see what, what people think, and especially about the solutions in, in terms of developing a Marshall Plan to really help uh, children get to where they need to be. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. A real pleasure talking to it's you. It's a pleasure. This was a really, yeah. well, it was a, great, it was a great conversation, and time went very quickly. And Thank you for having me, Catherine. Great. Thanks, Doctor. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 